0: podcast one production.
1: Jenny Cooney has been a part of Hollywood for 30 years reporting on all the Aussie stars from Hodes to the Hemsworths, Hugh Jackman, Nicole Kidman, Margot Robbie and beyond. This is Aussies in Hollywood.
0: Orna might not be as famous as kate blanchett but in 2008 she and kate found themselves the only two aussies nominated for an academy award that year eva won her oscar for co-producing the documentary taxi to the dark side about the us's use of torture in afghanistan you know just a light little comedy she's come a long way from her 1995 start as a production manager on the aussie soap blue heelers But when I caught up with Eva at her home in the Hollywood Hills, it felt so peaceful it was hard to believe this is a woman who spends her career in dangerous corners of the world making controversial documentaries. Some of her other films include Out of Iraq and Chasing Asylum, which was her recent expose on Australia's treatment of refugees on Manus Island. But it turns out that when she comes home to LA, peace and quiet is just what Eva needs. Let's start out by talking about how you end up in a place like this in LA with what you do for a living and how long you're on the road.
2: Yeah it's I guess it's funny that you described my house like that. I sort of feel it's like this little haven that I come back to in between projects and you know it's tucked away in the Hollywood Hills and you hear birds song and owls and coyotes at night and it's just quiet and peaceful and it's it just feels like the place I come to recharge in between projects and it makes me really happy to be home.
0: <laughs> You're a Melbourne girl. Yeah. And um, how did you end up getting into show
2: business in any
0: way at all? It's,
2: what was that like? I have to think back. I'm getting old. It's so long ago now. I just got an invitation to my 30th year high school reunion, so I'm a little freaked out. Um <laughs> It's it's interesting. I went to a fairly conservative school in Melbourne uh, where I'm from and it was very much, you know, it, it churned out doctors and lawyers and this is way pre-internet and, you know, we had so much less access then to to ideas and to opportunities. And so, you know, you, you didn't sort of jump online and think, oh, I want to go to film school in America or something like that. So, you know, I studied arts with the intention to become a lawyer which thankfully didn't happen because I think I would have been a terrible lawyer. And I sort of fell into filmmaking at university. I started making films with friends. And a lot of those friends went off to VCA to do film, the film course. And I didn't really feel confident or know what I wanted to do, I think. And so I sort of stayed at university, did an honours degree in fine arts. And then straight out of college, I got a job making industrials, corporate videos, um, really terrible ones, um, and just weirdly after that, a friend and I who'd graduated from uh, film school made our first documentary. She had a great idea. We got It was the easiest funded film of my life of 20, 30 year, 20 years um, of filmmaking uh, and it was a documentary for SBS called Untold Desires with Sarah Barton, the director. I produced it and we really, you know, didn't know what we were doing, but we worked really hard and we made this beautiful film and it won an AFI award, which is what actors used to. Actors now are. It won a Logie award. It was SBS's first Logie. It won a human rights award. It sold to like Channel 4 in the UK. And I was just a kid, you know, I was like 23 and um, it was kind of bizarre because I didn't really know what I was doing. And so that's actually, that was sort of almost the impetus to make me go and become a production manager at Blue Healers because I needed film school training. And so for me, Blue Healers was like, I think I did 100 hours of television as a production manager and I saw everything I learned. I met, you know, every working actor in Australia. I went through every scenario, you know, blowing up a house, burning down a ranch, horses, children, you know, cows. It was a country show. So it was just this, it was insane. I was this 25-year-old kid managing, you know, hundreds of people. It was We shot an episode in four days, two days studio, two days location, one day rehearsal. And we did, I think, I'm trying to remember how many episodes it was. It was like 43 episodes a year. So it was like film school on steroids for me. And I did that for like two years. Um, And then I made more documentaries, made a couple of features, low-budget scripted features in Australia, Uh, worked at the Film Finance Corporation, which is now essentially Screen Australia, Um, learning about deals and deal structuring. And then I came here. How's that for a quick summary?
0: (laughs) So so go back. You Mm. actually made a documentary before you'd ever done anything else. How do you end (laughs) up producing a documentary that wins awards when you have zero experience?
2: So my friend Sarah had just done film school. She had this idea for film and it was at the time, I think they were called, it was a program called The Accord Documentaries with SBS and ABC and they financed 10 one hours a year and simply you just put in a proposal and a budget and Sarah had this great idea about people with disabilities and sexuality um, and, you know, we put in this proposal and it was seriously, you know, six or eight weeks later we hit, there was a message on the answering machine saying, hi, I'm the commissioning editor from SBS and you've been selected. And then we had one meeting with the FFC and that was it. We got the money. It was like it's never happened again. It, honestly, it was the worst way to start because I thought, "Wow, this is going to be so easy raising money for movies and it's never been that easy since. <laughs> but making the film was very confronting and challenging because I was a kid and, you know, it was people with really severe physical disabilities talking about sexuality and, you know, really, it was really confronting for me. I, but I learned a lot and, um, yeah, it was cool.
0: Wow. I mean, that's quite a start, right? Yeah.
2: But but honestly, I felt like I really didn't know what I was doing. I mean, we worked so hard and we did a great job. You know, we made a good film. But it was a really good thing, for, I think, for me then to go back and sort of learn about production, learn about film financing. You know, it, was, it wasn't strategic. But that was the
0: spark for you then because you came back around to more documentaries. It wasn't like, I want to make movies. It was...
2: I think it's always been everything, interestingly. I think... You know, in Australia I made, I produced two features, low-budget features and did, you know, 100 hours of television. What were they called? One was called Josh Jarman with Pit Mushin and one was um, Strange Fits of Passion that I co-produced with Elise McCready. And then I also, this is so weird because it just really hit me when John Clark just passed away. I did um, one of the seasons on the games as a production manager and I just... I loved that man. We used to. I'd, I used to hang back with him once a week, and we'd go through casting tapes and choose casting for the next week's episode. And everyone was on that show, like Sam Neill, Dave Graney. We had, you know, everyone wanted to work with John. And we used to sit on. I used to sit on his desk with my legs crossed. We used to have a couple of beers and go through the tapes, and he'd tell stories. And it was just. It was a long time ago, but I just felt really. Um, I don't know. I felt so lucky to to watch and learn from him. And I caught up. I bumped into him at the Logies like. I don't know, seven years ago, they brought me out to present or something. And he just came up to me and gave me this huge hug. I hadn't seen him in so long. And he said, well, way to show us up. (laughs) He said, I always knew you had it in you. And it was so sweet. It was just, he was a lovely, lovely man. And I just, and so talented. So it's funny the people you, you kind of cross along the way in the Australian industry because it's so small.
0: But then you did another documentary in Australia before you left.
2: Yeah, another one called Secret Fear about panic disorder and panic attack with Sarah again. And then I'm trying to think of the order. And, and then I was at the FFC for a couple of years, which again was really interesting because I learned so much about how to finance a film. And I was, you know, looking at both scripted, non-scripted series, TV series, and I really... I found that quite interesting too. And looking back, it seems quite strategic. You know, I produced some documentaries, production managed some scripted, produced some scripted, went and did some film financing, but it was all completely random. I don't. I sort of just fell into things. I think. Um, and then I came here. Talk me through.
0: Was New York right? Was your yeah. first stop? That's not. That's not a
2: small decision to make. I actually came to America for love, not for work. <laughs> And I don't talk about it a lot because it just seems like this whole other world. But um, I was 34 and madly in love with some American dude and um, came here for love and it did not work out. It was actually almost tragically it didn't work out, like something terrible happened. And, you know, i just packed up my life and had my entire life at 34 in two bags and I had a work visa. Um And I wasn't in New York. I was actually in a small town. He was from a small town, which I think a lot of people find pretty bizarre. And a friend of mine was in New York and I called him just in tears. I was like, what am I going to do? And I didn't want to tell anyone at home because I'd say, come back. And I was sort of of like, I'm here. And it, you know, retrospectively, it was this catalyst that I needed to come here because I think it's been really good for me to come here. But that's how it happened anyway my friend was in New York and he said I'm going on a shoot for two weeks come and stay in my apartment and sort your shit out and I went to New York and it was I think September or October of 2004 and it was you know coming into winter and it was cold and I had done no preparation and I pounded the pavement and I sent out hundreds of resumes and walked to that city and had meeting after meeting and I landed this job with MTV doing this comedy pilot it was so bizarre um And I did that and then I met Alex Gibney.
0: Well, how did you meet
2: him? I went to meet his brother-in-law, Charlie Debovoise, who runs a really big reality TV series, uh, TV company. And in 2004, reality was just sort of taking off and I had this really highbrow resume and I only say that because I met with Charlie and he said, I mean your resume is so highbrow I don't know what to do with you and I remember saying to him because I was like really desperate and I said oh Charlie I can do lowbrow (laughs) and he said you know my brother-in-law is Alex Gibney do you know who he is and he said oh he's just made this film called Enron which hadn't come out yet and he said I know he's looking for a producer and he just sort of you know emailed Alex and during our meeting Alex emailed back and just said yeah get her into my office like next Tuesday or something and I started with him like the following week. We worked together for two years and we did I think four or five films and um. That's a lot in two years. It was interesting and fascinating and it was sort of you know it was a great opportunity. We had an amazing time Uh, and then after all of that I, I came to LA.
0: When did Taxi to the Dark Side happen? You were still in New York?
2: Yeah, yeah, so Taxi to the Dark Side is a critical look at the Bush administration's torture policies post-9-11. So it's about Guantanamo and Bagram and Abu Ghraib and, um, you know, it's a pretty grim film and it's, I think it probably stands up incredibly well still today. This debate is occurring because of uh, the Supreme Court's ruling that said that uh, we must conduct ourselves under the Common Article 3 of the Geneva Convention. And that common Article Three says that you know there will be no outrages upon human dignity. It's, 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 it's like it's very vague. What does that mean? Between two thousand and five and seven, I worked with Alex, and we made Taxi in two thousand and I guess five and six, and it came out in seven. I mean, probably a bit of overlap there, and it, it won at the beginning of two thousand and eight.
0: And the Oscar goes to. For Taxi to the Dark Side, Alex Gibney and Eva Orner.
2: Truth is, uh, I think my dear wife Anne was kind of hoping I'd make a romantic comedy. Um, But honestly, after um, Guantanamo, Abu Ghraib, extraordinary rendition, that simply wasn't possible. I think in some ways, you know, Alex really inspired me to speak out about things that are not right. And, you know, when I started doing Chasing Asylum, he told me he was really proud of me taking it on and i said i'm trying to taxi to the dark side australia (laughs) which is what i did yeah yeah
0: (laughs) so when you were making taxi to the dark side with him did you have any idea that this would lead to this other whole level for you because that really obviously was the film that you won the oscar for
2: yeah i mean i don't even know that it changed things that significantly for me it usually works that way for a director in documentary so I think for Alex it really did and what it did for me was it it was the catalyst for me moving to LA actually um, I had an agent at the time who was very behind it and a couple of friends here that, that said you should really move and it was just this instant decision I made after four years in New York I sort of came back from a couple of weeks in LA around Oscar time and said I think I should move to LA I think it'd be good for me and you know a month later I was here it was kind of crazy I guess I live my life a little bit like that. Um, And I've never regretted the move. I really love it here. But I thought it would just be better for me. I don't know. I needed to change things up. And then I, without even realising it, then I sort of transitioned into directing. So I think that's better for me here as well.
0: So what was your relationship like with Australia and Australians when you were in New York and and what was it like? It's one thing to visit L.A. and have a great time mm. but it's starting over again in a new city mm. that
2: you haven't lived in before. Mm. What was that like for That's you? That's a good question. When I went to New York, you know, I came on the back of sort of a bad breakup and not being prepared and so it was quite tricky. I had like ten friends in New York and I sent out this email to everyone when I arrived saying, please invite me to things, include me in things, look after me a little bit because it's, you know, this is tricky time for me. And all these friends just really stepped up and were amazing. So... And then when I moved here, I'd never even heard of Australians in film or anything like that. And it was much smaller in 2008 when I moved here. But Rob Mamone got in touch with me just after the Oscar and then you guys wanted to do a screening of Taxi and there was suddenly, like, all these Australians. I didn't know any of them and it was just really nice and kind of weird and something I hadn't expected. So it was actually, it's a really nice way, I think, when you come to LA. I mean, I, I did know a lot of people here, but there was this whole new Australian thing going on. That's when I
0: first met you was, I think, around the time when you came to the Australians in Film events. Yeah. And and you were sort of uh, then pretty much thrown into an Oscar campaign.
2: Yeah, we came out for, you know, the nominees' lunch and then I came out for, like, the week of the awards and there's lots of parties and events and things and... um, And it was super fun and you get to meet crazy people because also, you know, we'd been nominated for a few other awards. So you're sort of at the Gotham Awards, you know, was the first one and you meet lots of people and then you meet them all again at Oscar things and by that stage everyone's seen each other's films and, you know, Javier Bardem won that year and I remember he came up to me on like the third time we'd bumped into each other and said, I saw your film, you know, it's amazing. And so there was this this really nice build-up to it. But, yeah, I mean, that was, you know, the glamour side of it is just... Coming from my background, I'd never had my hair and makeup done before the Oscars. Like I'd never been glamorous, and um, and so it was super, super, super fun. But for me, it's like this thing you do every now and then. But it's not, it's not why I do it. It's not who I am. It's not, uh-huh. you know, put me in a story in the middle of nowhere somewhere, you know. And I'm much more excited. But it's really fun, and it's, it's I guess it's one of the perks of what we do if you're lucky enough to be recognised.
0: And then you started making and directing your own things. Yeah. You, you weren't working with Alex anymore no. in New York. So that was a whole new chapter for you.
2: I mean, I've always really loved documentary. I'm su- my company's called Nerdy Girl. I'm super nerdy. You know, I I think truth is the most, you know, real stories are the most interesting, particularly now. I mean, it's to me, you know, in films like Spotlight or even Moonlight, you know, they're all light films, but, you know, I, I just feel like films that are, I'm not a fantasy girl. I'm not a Game of Thrones girl. I'm not, you know, like we were just talking about, I love The Handmaid's Tale. You know, I like gritty stuff. I like real stuff. And so I think Doc's fascinating to me. And I love, I'm super curious. I love travelling. I love meeting people that I would never normally meet. And I just feel so incredibly lucky like just saying this now I'm thinking which will come to later I'm thinking about you know the whistleblowers from our last film and you know what a gift to be a part of their experience and their story so and, and a lot of the refugees that I've worked with so I just really I really like it and I I guess I just sort of felt like a few people pushed me into it and I felt like maybe it's time for me to do my own thing and because I've produced for so long I can produce and direct myself so mm. it just kind of happened yeah and I guess now I've done three films as a director The kind
0: of subjects that you delve into for a woman
2: to take on, particularly
0: going to the countries you go to and the misogyny and the sexism and, I don't know, the danger that's even more so for women. Can you just talk a little bit about what that experience has been like for you?
2: I don't think I really think about it. I think what happens with me is I get excited about a story And then suddenly I'm in it. So, for example, with The Network, I read an article in The New Yorker about Saad Massani, who the film is about, and I thought, well, someone actually, a friend in New York actually told me about the article. I hadn't read it. And I read it and I thought, wow, someone should make a film about this. And then I thought, well, it's Australian, set in Afghanistan. I can see ways I could raise some money out of Australia for this. You know, I'm always thinking how to make a film if it's feasible. And then I thought, oh, fuck, I have to make it. Like, And by that stage I was already hooked into the story, Um, so it's more, I think, I don't think I weigh things up and I think, and I talk about this a lot in the book, I think I, if I did weigh them up, I wouldn't be able to do them. My, my lawyer on Chasing Asylum said to me, I don't think I'd be able to do what you do because I'd be so worried about things like, I don't know, my whistleblower's going to prison. And I said, I, he said, how did you, you know, what were you thinking? And I said, I was thinking, it wouldn't happen and if it happened I would step up and take the blame and they would put me in prison like I'd be completely prepared to do that and he said yeah but it doesn't work like that and I said yeah but if I think that then I'd never be able to tell this story and I thought it was an important story to tell and the whistleblowers all knew what they were in for and I provided them with legal advice as well you know um so I think you just I don't know you just do it
0: I knew it was a detention centre. I didn't know that people have already been there for over 400, 500 days. There was sickness, disease, infections. It feels militarised.
2: If you come to Australia
1: illegally by boat, there is no way you will ever make Australia home. You go from looking after people to saying, if you come here, we're going to make it worse for you than if you'd stayed where you came from.
0: Well, you've been, you're playing down a lot of the dangers of the places you go and the things you do. But, (laughs) I I mean, I have to believe that there have been some moments that have been pretty, (laughs) pretty terrifying for you.
2: I'll read you the, this is not a plug, this is just because I can't remember it. But I wrote this book, Chasing Asylum, when we were making the film about the making of the film and the opening line. The opening chapter is called I'm Just Trying to Make a Movie and the opening quote is, you have the most slender neck of all of us. When we are hanged, yours will snap the fastest. (laughs) I rest my case. (laughs) So, yeah, things didn't... That chapter is basically just sort of setting up us arriving in Iran and the making of the film and the guy who said that was someone I paid a lot of money to. who's an Iranian man. Who specialises in keeping Western journalists and filmmakers out of jail? And it was day three in Iran, and he's like, "Yeah, I can't. I can't help you. We're all going to die because <laughs> something bad happened." And um, no, it was really it was tough. I mean, it was we were was an asylum seeker who had been on um, on Manus, who had chosen to go back to Iran after the riots that occurred on Manus when Reza brady died. Um, he was talking to us about what he had done in Iran that made him have to flee to Australia. And he was part of the Green Movement, um, which was a sort of a student revolutionary kind of um, movement just before the last election. And he said some things that I, I still can't even say now because, you know, people can die for it. But it's it's that crazy thing where, you know, if you criticise the leader, the supreme leader or something in a country like that, it sounds comical to us, but that means you're dead. But, um, yeah, it was that... It was that he said it, we recorded it. It was in um, Farsi, so I didn't I didn't have it translated yet. Everyone's faces went white. And then the place that we were filming, the owner came out because he was watching us on a camera unbeknownst to us and he started screaming in Farsi. And my cinematographer who spoke Farsi just looked at me and said, we have to leave now. And I didn't know what had happened until we were in the car. Um, and then for like two weeks in Iran, you know, ten airports, five cities, I had the drive with that on it in my in my, you know, just my handbag, you know, my my work bag. And I was there not on a work visa. I was there on a tourist visa because I'd never get a work visa and I was just supposedly visiting friends who were making a film, my film, and um, the guy who was protecting us thought we were being followed and they were watching us because I also came into the camera with like an entire film kit, you know, cameras and, you know, like four bags of film gear saying I was a photographer, I like to take photos. And... He was very concerned that if we got caught, which is highly likely, and they looked at our footage, we would all be hung. So that's that was the two weeks of fun I had in Iran. And we were filming every day and we travelled to five cities and we did some really tough filming. You know, we interviewed the parents of Reza Bradi and Hamid Kazai, both who died on Manus Islands. So it was really heavy. It was a really tough time. But at the same time, I had this drive on me the whole time and we ended up having to edit out that section before I flew out of the country because people were that worried. I was very thin by the time we left. The first few days in Iran, I couldn't stop eating because the food's so great. By the time we left, I had, yeah, I had a bit of PTSD.
0: Coming up on Aussies in Hollywood, Eva talks about one of the scariest moments of her life and what took her back to Australia in 2014 to document a human rights violation in her own backyard.
2: Getting out of the country was, you know, terrifying. It was really this build-up over two weeks and then my interpreter brought me to the airport and waited with me. And when you get to uh, Tehran Airport, they take your passport. And so that's a little unnerving. Mm. And we were all sitting in this lounge together. They put all the people on the Emirates flight together. They kept bringing back people's passports in sort of piles and my passport never came. And this went on for, like, I can't remember the details. It was a couple of hours. It was really horrible. And and then everyone got called to go on the plane. The flight was, like, 7.30 at night. And I think we sat there till about 830 and, you know, in your head, they're going through your bag, they're pulling out the drives, they're watching the footage. They're, you know, who, the, who, who knows? It's just what it does to your head. And then I had to go through, like, customs. They had to leave me and I had all my camera gear and, the, you know, they're opening, like, every lens and everything. And he said to me, if they stop you at customs and you're worried and you don't think they're going to let you through, he said, I know this will be very hard for you but look them in the eye and smile and say, I love it here in Iran. I'm very interested in Islam, I want to convert, I want to become Muslim. And he said, I know that will be very hard for you. And I said, fuck that, I'll say anything to get out of your country. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> now we know what the, what the golden phrase is. When I got on the plane, you know, it was very Argo. I kept looking, you know, expecting, you know, sirens. And it's just the things that happen to your head when you're in that position, when someone... Who knows about this stuff says to you we're in danger like it's the psychological thing of what could happen that starts eating you up and I finally got on the plane I was like the only westerner you know everyone's staring at me we finally take off and um I wasn't sure if they'd serve booze on the plane because Iran's a dry country but it was Emirates and they came around and said would you like dinner and I said could I please have a drink And, you know, I said, can I please have a gin and tonic? And then I said, actually, can I please have two gin and tonics? And I poured this, like, massive gin and tonic. And as I went to sip it, my hands just started shaking and they did not stop shaking for, like, seven days. So going back to your family... um, (laughs) I'm having fun now. I'm traumatised again.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, you know, talking about your family background, I was thinking... It sounded like, you know, and the way you were brought up and mm. talking about knowing what happened to them and your parents being, you know, your first generation Australian, your parents had to flee. Um, do you think that kind of informed this part of you that seems to be very much always fighting for the the person, you know, who needs the support and needs the fight for justice?
2: Yeah. You know, you grow up knowing that your grandparents had died. You grow up knowing that, you know, you're your parents came from these two huge families but you don't have any cousins because everyone died. You know, your parents have accents. Um, so you know there's a story. And I guess I was always curious and interested and, you know, read a lot. And I think I had this one pivotal memory when I was, I think I was only eight or nine, but it was when Cambodia was falling apart. You know, it was Campuchia, poor part, you know, genocide. And I remember seeing it on the television a lot and in the news. And there was this real vernacular in the 70s and 80s if you were Jewish, you know, never again, about the Holocaust. You know, it was very, very strong words, never again, never again. You know, Israel was a very different country. It was, it was all about, you know, the pioneering spirit of Israel. And I think I was sort of watching it on television and I saw on the maps, you know, as this precocious little kid, that it looked pretty close to Australia. And here we all were saying never again, never again. And there it was happening just over the ocean from us and millions of people were being slaughtered. And I just thought, huh, I mean, I think that's probably all I thought at that age. But I guess, I don't know, I just sort of planned just something new. Well, the fact that you remember that. Yeah, it just bothered me. And I guess I always felt like, you know, there are people that need to be defended and stood up for. And maybe that's sort of how it inadvertently happened. Um, Yeah.
0: And so you've always sort of felt your role in many ways in the work you do is to stand up for people?
2: I mean, sort of. I don't like overstating it because I'm not an activist. You know, I make films. I think people often say, call me an activist and I prefer to be just a filmmaker. Um, Because also I can do, you know, happy, nice films. I'm sure I'll do one one day. One day? But I just, I think sometimes when there are things that are grossly unjust, I think people need to be informed and, you know, you need to stand up and scream and shout. And I guess the last two films that I've done have been, you know, those stories. One is about, you know gay hierarchies and one is about Australian the, the Australian asylum seeker and refugee policy. So I probably need to do a romantic comedy right about now. And I'm just thinking about my slate. There's, yeah, no, nothing on my slate. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, you, but you made a decision to go back to Australia yeah. at that point in your career to make a story that was incredibly uh, challenging in terms of everything that... Yeah kind of we want to think of as australia in our head when we're overseas bragging about how much better australia is than america right
2: (laughs) i mean i I think back to the beginning of 2014 when i started chasing asylum you know started raising money because it was all privately financed because i didn't want to go to any government agencies and i honestly when i think about it now i'm like oh god i'm still i think i'm still worn out from that experience it was such a tough film to make and and even just like yesterday, I think I just did like probably my 110th Q&A yesterday just via Skype with a Canadian screening and I've talked about it so much and it's such a tragic story and it's still happening. So if that sort of stuff wears heavy on you and I think sometimes it's hard to shrug off. You know, I think that's part of why I live up here and, you know, try and live this nice lifestyle because I come home and I need to recuperate. But I think the thing with Chasing Asylum... It's so weird. I mean, since 2001, when it started with the Tampa, you know, when John Howard stopped the boat full of Hazara, Afghan Hazaras coming to Australia and Nauru started, I just never thought it would continue. I thought it was a blip. I thought it was an adoration. And, you know, I, if you'd said to me at the beginning of 2014, you know, if you'd said to me in 2001 that in 2014 or 2017 this would still be happening, I would never have believed it because I just, I, I just can't believe that's who we've become. And I just, you know, Tony Abbott had just, arrived and was just so full of absolute just i mean there's no word for it just absolute garbage and hatred and i just couldn't believe what was happening in australia and i I was speaking to people in australia and they didn't seem to be that informed about it and i thought maybe it's because of this policy of secrecy maybe it's because nobody can see what it's like in the camps. So I stupidly thought, well, you know, maybe I should make a film about it. (laughs) There's a pattern here. (laughs) Um, Didn't think it through and suddenly I was back in Australia for like two years, which is not anything I'd had in my plans or wanted to do particularly. Um, But what I will say is I had the most fantastic time. I hadn't been home in four years and I reconnected with um, old friends, made new friends, you know, despite the heaviness of the film I actually had a great time, and I feel really connected to Australia again. So I think it was a really great thing to have happened.
0: So how do you feel about that kind of work in your future? I mean, is there a certain point where you reach a certain age or a certain level or or a certain amount of PST where you think somebody else's turn to go and do that?
2: Yeah, definitely. I'm getting. I mean, I'm 47, so getting old and tired <laughs> I, I mean I think for now I can keep doing what I'm doing and I have a few projects you know ahead of me that are potentially a little bit tricky I, I'll say rather than dangerous oh, the coincidence yeah but I think longer term uh, you know I'll look at slight doing things slightly different I think you know getting into writing was a really good thing for me writing a book you know I'd love to do more of that um you know do some scripted work as well um Because things have really changed for documentary filmmakers. You know, documentary is so big now. Um, It used to be when people met you at a party and said, what do you do? And you say make documentaries, they sort of glazed over. And now everyone says, oh, my God, I love documentaries. All I watch on Netflix is documentaries. And it's, (laughs) you know, it's fantastic. So there seems to be, you know, people seem to be interested in documentaries, interested in documentary filmmakers. There's more work. There's more money available. Um, It feels like a good time. And a lot of people are moving into scripted as well. So... You know, it just feels like as I get older, I'll, you know, a slightly more regular life would be nice. The constant travel is quite hard.
0: So one thing I'm asking everybody, because always, there's always a million theories about this, is that, that there have been, you know, there were hardly any Australians doing mm. well overseas, you know, three decades ago. Mm. Now we, none of us can keep up with how many there are and they just keep coming in waves. Can you see something in common with any of these people or how we've done it?
2: I mean, there's definitely a uniqueness to Australians. There's definitely an openness. Um, You know, in terms of actors, I mean, damn, good-looking people. (laughs) And in a different way. And I don't mean that in a shallow way because they're also masters of their craft, but, you know, they don't look like people, Americans, you know, the men are more manly than American actors, a lot of them, yet they have this sort of softness to them. Um, The women are just, you know, breathtaking. I mean, every week there's another incredible young beautiful talented amazing actor and in terms of directors you know they're just good you know they make good films in Australia they come here some of them just come here and make good films I think I think there's just I don't know I guess there's just there's you know we're pretty gutsy um determined and people like us here you know I I, when people used to sort of say you know I don't know, I guess other journalists have said, you know, what do you put your success down to? And it's like, oh, it's just my accent. You know, I'm an idiot, but people just think I sound nice. So, you know, this, the accent just, this does
0: get you a long yeah. way here, don't you think? I yes. mean, I've gotten out of even a few parking tickets. with. <laughs> I have. <laughs> Back when no. it was a bit more unusual. Yes. Now, you know.
2: Well, I always feel like, oh, God, there's so many of us now. There's just going to be a day when they turn on us and we're going to have to leave. Because we've
0: taken all their jobs. Um. What do you think the next one may be or the next couple can you give us a few yeah, clues about the subject not, matter? or Not Not really,
2: because of because of the nature of them, I'm keeping them pretty quiet. But
0: are they going to take you to some scary places yeah. again?
2: No, I mean not in my head. In other people's heads, yes, but in my head, not not like not war zones particularly. But you know, they're they're dangerous. Um, you know, to me, it's just they and it's in, you know I don't want to say it's important. I don't want to make it sound like you know have my head up my ass. But you know, I think their story is worth exploring, and they say a lot about human nature and. You know, I'm really proud of Chasing Asylum and also Out of Iraq because mm. there are stories that people don't know about. People see them and are blown away. I mean, Out of Iraq is about this 10-year this struggle for these two gay Iraqis to be together in America.
0: The so war is dangerous, but I'm so excited because I'm with my boyfriend.
1: This is the person I want to spend all my rest life with.
0: But to be gay in my culture and my religion is bad. So I start thinking about a life with Batuu outside Iraq.
2: You know, Ellen DeGeneres saw the movie and had them on her show because um, she loved them so much. And, you know, they were, they're, were they you know, struggling to make a new life here and she gave them a $25,000 check. Oh, And it's like, damn, that's so awesome. Wow. Know, it's because of some story I heard about four years ago and I thought, let's make a film about this, you know. It's like wow, that's super cool and now they're talking at, you know, the film screened at the UN in New York and they're they're talking all the time at human rights functions and their lives have changed and they're in America and they're married and, you know, that's pretty awesome. And, you know, another story that's fantastic is um, the story of Kadim who was in Chasing Asylum, who was a refugee I met a couple of years ago in Indonesia, who was stuck. He didn't get on a boat to come to Australia because his brother was already in Australia and said, if you come, you'll end up on Manus or Nauru. And he stayed there and he was just stuck there. He was just a kid. He was like 18. Um, And he was there for about four years and without revealing how, but, you know, I managed to help him get accepted by America as a refugee. And he lived here for two months when I was away last year in June. I was stuck in Australia on the... Well, you mean in your house. Yeah. (laughs) It was like the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. He came to LA. I, I of course, got stuck in Australia. I was on a three-month film and book tour around the country. He gets a call from the American Embassy saying, you've been approved, and he winds up in LA because he'd said he was coming here because he's, you know, I'd written this letter supporting him. And thank God people renting my house had just moved out. And I had to send an email to all of my friends saying, who I hadn't seen in two years, saying, um, hey, hey guys, I've done it again. I need your help. <laughs> and I said, you know, there's this kid, he's in, he's, he's in LA, he doesn't know anything. I mean, he speaks English, but he's going to need help. And about 30 of my friends, none of whom who work in this field, who would, would that none of them would have ever met, met an Afghan before, except through me. They, my neighbours, gave him a job at their bakery. Um, you know, Tamsin Rwadi? Yeah. Their parents eventually actually he went and lived with them for a while because he wasn't coping very well on his own here. You know, he needed to be with people. Um, my friends took him out. They showed him how to use the buses. They helped him with his paperwork taught him to drive. He's, you know, it's a year later. He's working in the film business because he wants to be a filmmaker. He's got his license. He Where's owns he a living? car Studio City. Um, he was at the screening of my film. Um, he edgy, he goes around to schools and talks about the refugee experience all the time. And it's sort of like, you know, one down, 65 million to go. But like what a story. And I just I just had a dinner here a few weeks ago for 30 people um, to thank everyone. And we call them I call them Team Kadim. You know, all my friends who helped Kadim settle in America because it takes a village and all of my friends were enriched by the experience. They all see him still. Um, so it's one refugee at a time. It's such a nice thing to have happened out of the film. And there's usually a few stories like that out of every film.
0: And, you know, we're all immigrants really. Look at us all sitting here with our Australian accents
2: in We're LA. just lucky because we're white, you know. <laughs> um, you know, my housekeeper was just here and it's like, you know, it's, it's a different world for, yeah. for a lot of people and I think we have to be it, you know, it totally sucks that we can just, you know, we can come here and get visas and, I mean, it's, it doesn't suck for us but no. it sucks for everyone else. You know, we're so lucky. Um, and I guess that's the thing you walk away with out of all of these experiences. You walk away and it makes you realise how lucky you are and how you should take advantage of that.
0: Oh, Eva Orner, thank you so much Thanks. for talking to us. Thanks. Can't wait to see the next uh, adventure. Oh, God, me too. <laughs> <laughs> start serving up for therapy now no it's all
2: right I've always got Brad he's actually in the book I read about him in the book (laughs) thank you thanks
0: Eva has such an inspiring story winning awards and acclaim for her provocative work but doing it in her own quiet way with absolutely no hair and makeup budget to boot she's still driven by her passion to pursue a good story and find the truth wherever it takes her I can't wait to see what she does next, although I have a sneaking suspicion it won't be a romantic comedy.
1: On the next episode of Aussies in Hollywood, back home he's the long-haired comedian who made the Cardinal Pell song. But in LA, Tim Minchin is kicking goals. After successive roles in Californication and Robin Hood, Tim offers a word of caution to actors looking to make the move to LA. It's really hard, you have gotta find your craft and find what you believe you're good at and what you care about. Why am I acting? What stories do I want to tell? Why do I get up in the morning and do this other than because I want to get rich or be in magazines? If you want to do that, good luck to you. Welcome to Hollywood, but i I'd try and find something more. That's next time on Aussies in Hollywood. Aussies in Hollywood is recorded in LA for Podcast One. Recording is by Andrew Sink. Audio production by Alex Mitchell and Nick Slater. Executive producer is Jamie Show. For more episodes, head to podcast1.com.au or download the Podcast One app.